0: Welcome to Strange Sound. I'm Joe. This is episode 41 recording this on let's see what is it what is today? Today is 12/12. 12, 12. December 12th, 2020. 12/12/2020. 12, 12, 2020. <laughs> Very redundant sounding um, well, way of saying what day it is. Anyway, glad to have you with us. Or glad to have you with me because once again, not that it demands reminding every single time, but uh, Strange Sound is really just representative of my own personal opinions, my own personal political opinions. Uh, the show represents the views of no one other than me. Um, this is this show is not representative of the views of either my employer or my uh, neighbors or my friends or my family or anyone else. It's just me. So if you want to hear what I think, Tune into Strange Sound. We'll see you next week. Now, <laughs> that's... Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much what you come here for, if you come here at all. So that's all I got to say about that. How is everyone this week? Not tremendously good, I suspect. This has been a really, really, really rough week. Um, I was commenting to my wife the other day that uh, when... More than 3,000 people a day are dropping dead of something. Um, It becomes such an abstraction that uh, people can't really focus on it. It just becomes a number to them. And unless they're touched directly by this um, travesty, that they don't really understand the full impact of this. Uh, Every one of these people who are dying every day, Every one of these people has multiple connections in the world, is a member of someone's family, is someone's mother or father or sister or brother. God knows um, all of those things, perhaps, um, and many more. And they leave a big hole. When 9-11 happened and close to 3,000 people died that day, uh, it seemed like everyone was touched in some personal way. It really brought home that concept of uh, six degrees of separation, uh, you know, later sort of parodied as six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but it's it really is true. I mean, it seemed like everyone knew somebody who died on 9-11 or had some... Um, Either close or remote connection to someone who had died that day. And it seemed truly remarkable that these 3,000 people were so, had such a network of connections to other people across the country. I mean, I knew somebody who died in one of the towers. Um, uh, somebody I went to school with, I think I mentioned it on the podcast before. His name was Michael O'Brien. And he worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. He was up in the, one of the upper floors of the second tower that got hit, which was the first one that collapsed, I believe. And yeah, he uh, he died. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to say who is my best friend in the world. I knew him pretty well. I went to grade school with him. I went to junior high with him. I went to high school with him. And I, I knew him. Pretty well during those years. I had lost contact with them since school, um, so I I can't say that we were like hugely close. But I do I do remember them, and I remember them pretty fondly. And it it was terrible. But I'm I, I guess I'm I only raise that to say, if that's the kind of connection that I had with people, and I knew other people that had connections to this tragedy, and of course it's something that happened in. In the heart of Manhattan, <laughs> in southern Manhattan, you know, um, of course, millions of people have some connection to someone who either lives or works there or uh, was visiting there or whatever because it is it is a massive um, hive of people <laughs> to not to put too fine a point on. I don't mean to dehumanize anybody, but it's just there's a lot of people that come and go there. It's a very, very busy place. And uh, yeah, so that's why, you know, in these recent weeks, as the number of deaths from COVID has increased um, exponentially, I mean, we're up to in excess of 3,000 a day, again, actually higher than it's ever been. Um, I, I think of that day, and I think of the fact that, you know, Everyone knew somebody, and it's like, this is a nine eleven day. How many people in this country are connected to someone who died of COVID? How many people? It seems like at this rate, everyone's going to know somebody. Everyone is going to be touched by this in some direct way, and maybe that's the only way the seriousness of this can be sort of brought home, because... Numbers like 3,000 or 15,000 or 20,000 or 290,000 are abstractions to people. And unless they see them represented in some kind of tangible way, in some kind of human way, so that the number becomes human beings rather than just a number, I, I don't think people properly understand what's happening here. This is just this is a travesty. This is more people dead from from COVID than died in the Second World War from the United States. That's that's astonishing. I mean more people die in a single day than have died in the entire 19 years of the Afghan War at least in terms of uh, American casualties and really that's you know if you include other casualties where well, you may have to have a week's worth or a couple of weeks worth or, you know, three weeks worth to cover that. But honestly, this is, this is just appalling. And I don't know what it is about American society. I think it's, I think it's just the degree to which we're plugged into media, different types of media, whether it be television or the internet or, you know, social media or, Whatever, it just seems like everything gets normalized. Everything turns into just another part of the wallpaper. Everything fades into the background, including this, until it touches you personally. That is terrifying. That's the most terrifying thing about American society right now, in my opinion. It's just the fact that we can sort of, we can countenance this thing and not, not behave in a way that would be appropriate to the circumstances. I'm not saying we should all be panicking, but we should be trying harder. We should be doing something about this. You know, we should be trying to protect our neighbors, our loved ones, our, our, our communities against this scourge. Whatever it is we need to do, either on a personal basis or on a, on a political basis, you know, whatever it is, we need to respond to this in a way that's appropriate to the scale of the problem. That's something we always have a problem with as Americans, I think. You know, we need to meet problems at scale, not um, try, to, um, try to cook up a, a solution that's far too small to address the problem. I mean, to me, like uh, the perfect example of that is Obamacare, right? It's if the problem is healthcare in America and keeping Americans not only healthy, but giving them access to, and I mean by access, I mean being able to go see a doctor when they need to see a doctor and not having to worry about the cost. If that's the goal, Obamacare was a very incomplete solution. What you know, I, I've often said, and I've probably said on this on this podcast many times before. When you look at a system and say uh, this system is not working properly, you got to make sure that your analysis of that system correctly determines what the point of the system is. If the point of the American healthcare system is to make people well, yeah, it's not working very well. It's not working very well at all, despite the best efforts of, of the practitioners, of the medical providers, of the frontline workers who are, in my own personal experience and from what I've seen beyond that experience, uh, first rate, truly first rate, dedicated, skilled professionals uh, operating at a very high level and under tremendously demanding circumstances but the system that they work within seems like it's not working if you're looking at it as if the intention of it is to make people well and to give them um, the ability to see a medical professional when they're sick without having to worry about the cost. Yeah, that system doesn't work very well, you would say to yourself. But that's because the intention of the system is not to do that. The intention of the system is to make money for people and to continue making money for people. And so when Obamacare was, was crafted, you know, with the help of Republicans, even though they didn't vote for it, but with the, the driving influence of Republicans based on a plan that was implemented by the Republicans and that was actually developed by the Heritage Foundation— was actually kind of similar to the plan that uh, Romney implemented in Massachusetts a few years earlier. Romneycare. (laughs) Actually, Romneycare was a bit more progressive than Obamacare. It actually had a uh, kind of public option built into it. But, I mean, the purpose of it was to preserve the market for private insurers and for employer-based health insurance. It was to save that market because there was a recognition, and I think one that became more acute in the wake of the financial crisis of 2007-2008, that the whole system was on the verge of just falling in on itself, that it was unsustainable, and they recognized that, that even the insurance companies, I think, recognized that they had to do something slightly different in in, in order to perpetuate the model that had served them so well for decades. And so Obamacare, I think it was partly the intention of the uh, administration itself, the people who designed it within the administration itself, the people who worked on the implementation of it within the administration itself, and within um, the sort of leadership of the Democratic Party. Um, I I think that was probably the intention um, with an eye to, okay, this will be a way to get to something like universal coverage, even if we don't get there, at least it will seem like an attempt to get there. And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to um, impose a level of cynicism beyond just what's normal for politics. <laughs> I'm not trying to say that these are like evildoers who are trying to pull a fast one on people. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is the fact that. When they were beginning to formulate this policy in 2009, the first people they were talking to were the health insurance companies and the large um, pharmaceutical companies and the hospital associations. Um, In fact, I think Biden was tasked with some of this, where they were preemptively talking to them before they tried to implement this because they were you know responding to what had happened during the Clinton years which was essentially the entire industry turned on the entire industry turned on the Clinton administration and killed the bill before it even re- really came up for a vote so <laughs> they you know armed with uh, the memory of of that experience the Obama administration and the officials within the Obama administration tasked with formulating this policy and working with Congress to sort of construct this this plan, they preemptively went out to—and they, they sort of made news out of this—they preemptively went out to the health providers, the health insurance providers, the pharmaceutical companies, the hospital associations, all of the big players— that are at the center of this industry, that are the key generators of, of either profit or at least massive income in this industry, and tried to get their sign-off on this, tried to get them on board with this. They were They were relatively successful, though I do remember about the time that Obamacare was the Affordable Care Act and Patient Protection Act or whatever it was called, Um, was being put to um, its final set of votes, that there was a significant amount of advertising put out by the um, American healthcare industry. Uh, I think it was the industry group for the health insurers. Um, I distinctly remember ads in, this must have been 2010, ads depicting someone in a workplace being laid off or being having their health insurance canceled because of some provision in the bill. Um, there was a kind of a dramatic depiction of that, you know, and a, a worker being told that he's being let go or that there's going to be layoffs because of the additional costs put on the uh, put on the employer by this new program. Um, and, and so they were trying to short circuit it at the last minute. So I, I don't think their buy-off was, was a hundred percent in favor of the Affordable Care Act, but honestly it was kind of a last ditch effort. I think just based on the specific legislation that was coming up, but really what was passed was something that essentially made it illegal not to buy the products. If you're in the income group and in the sort of, um, if you're situationally within the group, that would be um, expected to go to the healthcare care exchange uh, to buy a, a private plan. Um, if you weren't people who were taken up by the Medicare, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Medicaid expansion in the states that allowed it, and if you weren't amongst the group that, the large group that um, is covered by employer-based health insurance, I, I'm sure there were provisions that the, the industry wasn't happy with. But in the end, what this meant for them is a lot more customers. Now they also had to take customers that they didn't want to take, and they had to find ways of, you know, discouraging those customers from you know, um, taking advantage of their plan <laughs> and, and they have, and they found ways, right? And I won't go into details about this, but what, what I'm saying is ultimately the, um, ultimately what emerged as Obamacare was an effort to preserve the private market for health insurance um, in the United States, as opposed to going to something more like the Canadian single-payer system, which would have, in essence, eliminated private health insurance um, as a core means of paying for medical care and for um, health care, generally, wellness care, that sort of thing. In a system that was that's that's like Medicare for All, there would still be room for private insurers. It's just that they would be much more niche um, products and services that they would sort of provide around the edges of what um, a Medicare for All would provide. My hope would be that Medicare for All would be comprehensive enough that there would be very little room for that. But my guess is that the kind of Medicare for All you would get in the United States, if we ever got anything like that, would have some small gaps that could be filled in by these insurers. Um, nevertheless, that's the that's kind of the signal example um, that I give of a system that um, seems not to work but actually does kind of work if you correctly determine what the purpose of the system is. Just to get back to what I started with, this level of loss... That we're experiencing in the United States right now, a standout experience as far as the entire world is concerned. It's it's globally we are we are essentially number one. The COVID crisis is far worse here than it is anywhere else, and uh, you know that's that's a bad distinction. I think I've mentioned previously on this show. The fact that the number of losses in the Iraq War really wasn't brought home to me until I, in a way, in a very concrete way, until I saw um, an exhibit that a traveling exhibit that made its way to my hometown here um, that involved setting up essentially grave stones um, representing the number of dead Americans in the Iraq War. Up to that point, which at the point that the show came to uh, this town, uh, was about 500 um, American casualties, um, American deaths in Iraq at that point. This was early on in the war, and uh, just seeing just seeing those um, 500 little fake gravestones on a hillside uh, gives you an idea of how many people, you know, 500 actually is. And in the years following that, I kept thinking, my God, you know, it's it, it got up to in excess of 4,500. That was really om- almost, you know, it, an almost tenfold in, increase over what I had seen on that hillside that day. Um, as I've said on the show before, you know, that... Um, memory of those 500 um, imitation gravestones on the hillside representing those 500 dead Americans um, in the Iraq War, that was, you know, I sort of held that in my mind in the subsequent years so that when the death toll reached 4,000 or 4,500, I, I could think, oh, it's that thing I saw times nine. And it made it a bit more concrete, right? That's like that seemingly ridiculous number of deaths expressed in physical terms. I mean, objects on a hillside. You know, that's the number. It's not just a number. It's individuals. It's kind of gobsmacking, really. And when I think about the number of people who are dying on a daily basis because of this COVID crisis... Uh, I think of those gravestones <laughs> on the hillside in that Iraq war exhibit that came to my town and really, um, on a daily basis, it's that time, six, 3000 a day, and it's likely to get worse. So, uh, this is a catastrophe, my friends. And, uh, you know, we, we need to, we need to address it. <sighs> My suggestion is that you contact your representatives in Congress, your senators, your Congress member, um, and tell them that we need to um, make some serious investments in, in helping people get through this crisis. And that includes on the economic side as well. We need to come up with some kind of system for direct payments to people to get them through the next few months. And again, I've mentioned on the show before, the day after Christmas is the day that millions of people's um, unemployment benefits are going to run out. What I haven't mentioned before, but which what is actually a pretty stunning fact, is that many of the people who rent in the United States have something in excess of uh, $5,000 in debt that they're $5,000 behind on their rent at this point because of the year they've had. These are ordinary people who do not make very much money. They cannot pay off a $5,000 debt. <laughs> Nothing like it, right? Uh that's, you know, they can't make up that deficit. And if they're um if the moratorium on evictions runs out on them, they're cooked. This is from a tweet by Heather Long. I, I retweeted this. Um, nearly 12 million renters will owe around $5,800 in back rent and utilities by early January. Uh, she writes, it's the latest alarming sign that millions of unemployed Americans can't pay for basic needs. This is like a Charles Dickens novel, a utility director told me. This is appalling. This is absolutely appalling. I mean, what's to be done about it? Well, look, what's to be done about it is what other what other governments have done about it. I know this is America, and this we're not like everybody else, but quite honestly, uh, we need to do better than this. I've probably mentioned this on this uh, show before, but I'm I'm going to reiterate it because I think it's I think it's important. This is put out by Public Citizen, um, a couple of weeks ago. This is the percent of wages currently subsidized by governments due to the COVID crisis. In Japan, it's 100% for small businesses, 80% for large firms. In other words, they're subsidizing wages for small businesses at 100% and 80% for large firms. In the Netherlands, it's up to 90%. In Norway, it's up to 90%. Germany does up to 87%. France does up to 84%. Italy does up to 80%. Even in the United Kingdom, it's up to 80%. Canada, just north of us, 75%. Subsidy for wages. To keep people home and to keep businesses alive and to keep people rolling, right? Keep them from going bankrupt. You know, while we try to fight this coronavirus, while we try to keep coronavirus from spreading and killing 3,000 people a day and sickening many hundreds of thousands, something like 200,000 people a day being sickened by this, the corresponding number or percentage in the United States is zero. There is no subsidy for large businesses, for small businesses in terms of wages, Zero. We're doing nothing. That's unacceptable. It's, it's hard to imagine that we're going to see any significant funding for wage replacement in the United States at this point. The incentive structure is completely against it. The time to have set this up was back in April. And essentially the Democrats blew it. They didn't handle this very well. <laughs> they gave away the store. They basically gave Mitch McConnell what he wanted and the Republicans what they wanted um, without it costing them all that much. Uh, what they wanted was the massive subsidy for big business. It's just basically it opened the Federal Reserve spigot, create a lending instrument that would allow them to, to essentially get $4 trillion in free money to use as they see fit. And that's what they got. So they did pretty good. And the Republicans got what they wanted. So now they don't need to do anything else. There's no leverage that you can apply against them. Oh, sure, they want their... um, Mitch wants his tort reform, his instant tort reform, liability protection for employers, like, you know... I don't know Hormel or whoever the uh, meatpacking companies that uh, put people's lives in danger because they don't want to spend the money on keeping people safe. They just want their workers to come in and work like they always did side by side. If they get infected it's their hard luck. I mean that they he wants protection for them, not for their workers. He's worried about them, you know, having having to sort of fight off lawsuits, having to pay settlements. That's what the Republicans are worried about. And right now the Democrats don't have a lot of leverage. I mean, I think Bernie Sanders is trying to, he's working with uh, Josh Hawley to uh, pass a um, direct payment to Americans. Now I'm, I'm in favor of that. Um... I wish that we lived in the kind of country where you could just provide these payments to people who need them. But I realize that that's in America that's just really hard to do. You almost have to just give it to everybody and then pick it up on the tax side, you know, from from people who need it less to sort of get it, get it on the back end. And that's fine, great, whatever as long as we get money into the hands of the people who need it i know the republicans are dead set against helping state and local governments particularly blue state and local governments um they don't like the fact that they they have to spend federal money on um helping new york state you know keep some of its hospitals open or or sort of recoup the The costs of um, having people, you know, thrown out of work and, you know, it's an expensive proposition for state and local governments. Um, And the federal government should be helping them out, and they're not. For the Republicans, this is what they would term a blue state bailout. The fact is blue states have been bailing out red states for a good long time. We're creditor states states like New York I mean I don't want to I don't want to harp on this because you know the United States is a nation <laughs> uh, all the states sort of contribute and all the states benefit from the contributions of others you know but I mean if you're going to reduce it to who's paying for whom and who's you know taking more money than they're than they're putting out if they're going to complain about a so-called blue state bailout uh, let's face it, New York and California and other blue states contribute a hell of a lot more than they take out. So it's time to help the more populous areas of the country get through this crisis. Stop playing politics with that. They have absolutely no incentive. The Republicans have, have absolutely no incentive to do anything meaningful on the score. They just got through the election better than they ever would have hoped to have gotten through, aside from losing the presidency, which they still haven't admitted to. At least 126 of the members of the House won't admit to the fact that they lost the presidential election, but they gained some seats in the House. At least they haven't lost the Senate yet. So uh, they have no incentive. They got through their election. They're not worried about it. It's no skin off their nose. This is just unbelievable. I mean, I, I'm almost speechless over it. It's just so ridiculous that that this level of crisis could be met with such um, such a feckless response, such a lack of concern, such a lack of commitment to intervene. Our government is just missing in action. It's just astonishing. I mean, I know the president is is tuned out. All he cares about is you know getting whatever branding benefits he can possibly get out of having lost the election. He's gone completely to plan A, which was, you know, I was cheated. I actually won, but the crooked Democrats kept me from taking office, which is what his original plan was. I discussed this a couple episodes ago. That's his obsession right now, and he's going to continue obsessing over that, and his followers will continue obsessing over that. They don't want to waste time on COVID response. I mean, to them, it's no big whoop, right? They get sick, they go into Walter Reed, they get the uh, they get the antibody cocktail, Regeneron, whatever. I'm not going to call it a miracle cure, but it's an expensive treatment that's not available to practically anyone <laughs> except them, and uh, they come out just fine unless you're Herman Cain, Giuliani came out fine. It's because they pumped him full of the stuff. I'm sure approved personally by the president of the United States. So if you're a personal friend of the president of the United States, you don't have very much to worry about. That's why they're going around with no masks. They're having Christmas parties. They're having big rallies right in each other's faces. They don't care. You know why? They're covered. They don't have to worry about it. It's just, uh, you know, again, I know this isn't good for a podcast, but I'm speechless. (laughs) Uh, All I can say is call your representatives, write your representatives. I don't know. Go visit them. Talk to them. I'm not even sure who my representative is yet. Uh, The Brindisi-Claudia Tenney race is still out, still hasn't been decided, has been taken to court last news was that Claudia was 12 votes ahead of Brindisi before it was Brindisi was 12 votes ahead of her. And for some reason, 12 votes is the magic number. I can no one knows what's going to happen. So I don't know who to call now, probably Brindisi, <laughs> but I'd, honestly just put some pressure on your legislators, you know, whatever party they're in, particularly if they're Republicans, but even the Democrats. I think we just need to push people to consider this a more urgent matter than they're currently considering it. Um, because it is countries in crisis, you know, we need help. People need help. And, uh, you don't need me to tell you that, but here I am emphasizing that point for what it's worth. Anyway, that's all I've got to say this week. Thoroughly disgusted, my friends. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Are you disgusted? Are you half as disgusted? Or maybe twice as disgusted as I am? Well, let's see. Why don't you tell me about it? Go to anchor.fm slash strange sound and leave a one-minute voicemail. Or you can tweet at me or personal message me at strange sound on Twitter. If you go to Anchor Strange Sound, you can find links to our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, our uh, you know our YouTube channel, which is kind of moribund right now, but we'll see. And uh, you know, there's different ways to get in touch with us or me. There's different ways to get in touch with me. I'm pretty easy to find. If you go to Big Green you will find other ways to get in touch. So please do. And I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to turn this into a conversation, as I've said many times. Um, I hope you have a decent rest of your week. And hopefully uh, I'll be talking to you again very soon. Should be next week. We'll see. Till then, take good care. Be safe. And uh, do what you can to help others in these very difficult times. We'll see you.